Please turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 13. And uh, we're going to read from verses 12 to 17. Jeremiah 13, 12 to 17. This is God speaking to Jeremiah. Say to them, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. Every wine skin should be filled with wine. And if they say to you, don't we know that every wine skin should be filled with wine? Then tell them, this is what the Lord says. I'm going to fill with drunkenness all who live in this land, including the kings who sit on David's throne, the priests, the prophets, and all those living in Jerusalem. I will smash them one against the other, parents and children alike, declares the Lord. I will allow no pity or mercy or compassion to keep me from destroying them. Hear and pay attention. Do not be arrogant, for the Lord has spoken. Give glory to the Lord your God before he brings the darkness, before your feet stumble on the darkening hills. You hope for light, but he will turn it to utter darkness and change it to deep gloom. If you do not listen, I will weep in secret because of your pride. My eyes will weep bitterly, overflowing with tears, because the Lord's flock will be taken captive. Well, for those of you who couldn't make it last week, we saw Jeremiah confront his listeners with a vivid image of themselves as a beautiful sash made to be worn by God himself to show off his beauty to the world. But the people had become so filthy and rotten that they were unwearable. Well, today we're going to see the horrifying sequel. And the key object is not a sash today, but a wine bottle. Now, I know the NIV says uh, wineskin, which I just read. Uh, Jeremiah was more likely, I think, referring to something made from pottery. So I'm just going to call it a, a wine bottle, if that's okay. Well, as I say, this is the sequel to the episode of the sash. It's horrifying because it confronts us with sin, with the consequences of our failure to be the people God called us to be. As we reflect on this short little passage, there are two simple but crucial questions that it directs us to ask as we ponder our own sinfulness. First question is, when should you be afraid? The second question is, when should you be hopeful? Got a short third point to consider at the end, but these are our two main questions for this morning. So as we get started, uh, please join me as I pray. Father, open our ears to hear and pay attention to your word, to receive it humbly and not be arrogant. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, first some context. Uh, it's worth remembering exactly how Jeremiah's listeners had placed themselves beyond repair, beyond forgiveness. The key verse for this is back just a couple of verses earlier in verse 10 where it describes the people who refuse to listen to my words, who follow the stubbornness of their hearts and go after other gods to serve and worship them. The letter of Hebrews paraphrases these words when it speaks of a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. 
See, it's not simply that their lives stopped reflecting the character of God. It's what actually lay behind that behavior. Right? They'd received the benefits of God's love, salvation from slavery, a good land, prosperity and safety. And they knew what God had done for them. They were well taught. And so they also knew that God abounds in love and faithfulness. They made the cynical decision to live like the pagans, to worship stuff, to live for themselves. You see, what they figured out is that so long as they kept going to the temple, making the right sacrifices, singing the right songs, God would basically have to keep his promise to Abraham. Now they had the best of both worlds. The fact that the writer to the Hebrews can warn his Christian readers against being like this makes today's verses, I think, terribly sobering. Yeah, horrifying, actually. They're here to make people afraid. Well, in verses 12 to 14, God gives Jeremiah a new word to say. Then he tells him how the people will react. And then he gives Jeremiah the words to say in reply. So first, as you may have noticed, Jeremiah got to open the conversation with an obvious statement, right? something designed to get a reaction. It's not the only time he does this, and Amos before him used to use this technique as well. Right? There is in verse 12. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Every wine bottle should be filled with wine. Well, not hard to predict the response, really, is it? Duh. You know, don't you think we know that? You remember how I began this sermon? I just saw the little red live sign on my screen and I said, am I on? How did you react? Did you, maybe were you a bit amused, a bit embarrassed for me? Uh, or maybe like my poor producer, Dan, you just said, yes, you're on. Yeah, well, that was Jeremiah's listeners. You know, they weren't really in much doubt about who the idiot was which is actually pretty much how they felt about their God as well. Well, Jeremiah's obvious statement has got them ready for the sucker punch. Right? You know what the wine bottles are for, do you? Good. Well, here's something you may not know. You are God's wine bottles. And don't imagine being filled with wine means, you know, a night on the town getting happily drunk. It means acute poisoning, utter helplessness, madness and death. Later on in Jeremiah 25, God calls this the wine of my wrath. And it represents the helplessness and death that comes from being overrun by a brutal army. No one's going to escape, not the rulers, not the theologians, not those who felt they had special insight into the future. In fact, the leaders are the first to go, they're the most to blame. Actually, the full horror of what God is announcing really hits home with a change of image in verse 14. The wine bottles are smashed to pieces, parents and children alike, as God withholds all pity, mercy and compassion. You know, I find the violence of this language deeply confronting. Its roots go back into Deuteronomy 13. I want you to listen to what Moses says in that chapter. 
if your very own brother or your son or daughter or the wife you love or your closest friend secretly entices you saying, let us go and worship other gods. Do not yield to them or listen to them. Show them no pity. Do not spare them or shield them. Seems especially harsh that children are mentioned, doesn't it? But back in Jeremiah 7, we read this. Do you not see what they're doing in the towns of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather wood, the fathers light the fire, and the women knead the dough and make cakes to offer to the Queen of Heaven. Parents were ingraining practices and worldviews into their children, which removed any prospect of faithfulness in the next generation. They didn't feel guilty about it. They went to the temple as well. They felt they had God under control. They were doing what they needed to keep him on the side. So this reply to them here of Jeremiah's was a bombshell. These listeners had internalized and justified their behavior so deeply that a bit later in the book, they actually asked Jeremiah, what have we done wrong? Now, of course, we here today, we're not among Jeremiah's listeners. We're not ancient Israelites and our disobedience is not going to bring the Babylonians down upon us. But if you're someone who has made a comfortable accommodation between the God who saved you and the gods you live for, then you need to feel the horror of these words very personally. It's not so much the sinner who has reason to fear, we're all sinners. It's the person who has stopped caring that they sin. It's not the person who finds themselves returning to ask forgiveness for the same sins again and again who has reason to fear. It's the person who has become cynical about God's love for them. Who figures that Jesus' death for them gives them a license to do basically whatever they like. Who might say all the right things, but who secretly treats God like a fool. If that's you, then God is telling you to be afraid. He hasn't changed. He's still a consuming fire. But if that's you, God is also giving you another chance. And this brings us to the second part of our passage. After each of Jeremiah's sermons, we get a series of responses in poetry, responses that slow us down to reflect on the sermon, to let us see how God and his prophet feel about what they've just been saying. Well, back in verse 9, um, God spoke of their inordinate pride and their refusal to listen. But now Jeremiah, here in verse 11, urges them to drop their pride, their sense of entitlement, their belief in themselves, and start listening. Now, to really listen, not defensively so you can justify yourself, but prepare to let God show you what you look like through his eyes. Right, to see that phrase there, to give glory to the Lord your God, that's basically a, a Hebrew way of telling someone to admit their sin, to be prepared to let God be their judge. There's a terrible urgency to this appeal. For the believer who stopped caring that they sinned, for the self-justifying servant of two masters, 
time is fast running out. The sun is setting, the shadows are lengthening, and the darkness when it comes will be total. Now, Jeremiah gives two reasons for this in his preaching. The external reason is simply that the Babylonians were on the way. But the internal reason is that the longer a person refuses to listen, the harder it becomes for them to start listening again. But the more they justify themselves, the more they believe their own rhetoric until what verse 10 calls the stubbornness of their hearts makes them unable to hear the voice of God anymore. You hope for light, says Jeremiah, but in their case, that hope is a sign of how deeply deluded they've become, how thoroughly they've deceived themselves. And the darkness which Jeremiah is speaking about here, which will engulf them, it's not the darkness of God's absence. This is the darkness of his presence as judge. It's the darkness of that great and terrible day of the Lord. Tragically, Jeremiah's listeners had stopped listening. But if you hear a warning like this, and if you recognize yourself in it and feel afraid, then you should take hope. You should know that it is not too late to give God the glory, to let God be your judge, to throw yourself upon his mercy. There's one more truly wonderful thing that you should know about the God you rightly fear. That is that God's judgment never falls without tears. In verse 17, the prophet's tears well up in secret. Jeremiah is perhaps speaking about a private location where he could grieve over the futility of his preaching without being mocked by the people. But his grief can't be held private. It rises up from those secret depths and overflows uncontrollably. And here we see Jeremiah speaking out that grief in public. Why does he do that? Well, because it's not just God's words the prophet speaks. It's also God's affections, his deep and perfect sorrow that Jeremiah reveals by means of his tears. This is a deep tension which God chooses to experience and which was already there actually back in verse 14, although it takes us uh, Jeremiah's tears to make us see it. Verse 14, let me remind you, what does he say? I will smash them one against the other. I will allow no pity or mercy or compassion to keep me from destroying them. God never stops being a God of pity, a God of mercy, a God of deep compassion. So he's not saying that these qualities somehow stop characterizing him when he judges his people. He'd, he'd have to stop being God for that to happen. No, to act despite his pity, mercy, and compassion is a measure of the cost to God of destroying the people he loves. It's a measure of just how necessary this destruction is, of just how horrific the consequences are of the whole creation when God's people stop listening to his voice. And, and this is the good news, for the person who has a real and justified fear of God's judgment, this is a measure of just how quickly and surely 
God will restore anyone who turns to him for mercy, pity and compassion. So that's it. Two very simple and urgent words from God in this text. Let me remind you of them. First, if your heart is hard and you are slow to repent, learn to be afraid. You know, in contrast to the Old Testament people of God, the writer to the Hebrews says of us Christians, we who have believed enter his rest. What does it mean to believe? It means to turn towards God in repentance, faith and obedience. Hebrews 3, we read, see to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. And the consequences are too terrible not to take action. To seek out Christian brothers and sisters, to make yourself accountable to, to pray with, to point each other to the gift of God. As the writer to Hebrews goes on, encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Secondly, if God's voice exposes your unrepentant sin and fills you with fear, then you can take heart. And the prospect of your judgment was enough to bring God's son into the world to save you from it. Jesus' tears over the death of Lazarus, Lazarus are the tears of God over your death and my death. They're the, a measure of the depth of his mercy pity and compassion, which he gives and which gives the most hardened of sinners absolute confidence to approach his throne of grace, to receive mercy, to find grace, to help in time of need. Finally, we are all training to, in some sense, be uh, ministers of God's words, to be servants of his people, to be teachers and pastors. As we leave this text behind, we mustn't forget two basic truths that it has for us as we minister God's gospel. First one is that God's judgment is very hard to speak about, it causes offence every time, but it is absolutely vital that we do not ignore this hard truth as we serve God's people. And secondly, you actually don't get to preach judgment without tears. We're not prophets like Jeremiah, but we have been entrusted with the prophetic word of the cross. If you preach judgment without tears, you fundamentally misrepresent the character of the God of mercy, pity, and compassion. So I hope that this reminder encourages you to persevere in faithfulness as we struggle ourselves and help others struggling with the terrible grip of sin and fallenness in our lives. And I hope it encourages you to look towards and point one another towards the God of mercy, pity and compassion. Please pray with me.
Heavenly Father, we thank you that we do not have a high priest who is unable to feel sympathy for our weaknesses, but we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are yet without sin. Let us, Heavenly Father, approach your throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Amen. <laughs>